0: Amen. Well, just I would highlight that that training class that Kevin uh, talked about. Just want to underscore that a little bit. I've been really uh, honest. Uh, from the pulpit, in, in the past, uh, I won't do the whole story now, but about just my own personal uh, battles with depression and dealing with clinical depression. So uh, if that's something that you experience in your life, clinical depression, anxiety, those types of things, uh, or even kind of generalized anxiety stuff where you know somebody, uh, that would be a great training class. Again, all the details are in your bulletin. It's this Wednesday night. Uh, so check that out because I, I would just highly recommend that. Uh, from me personally, Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to my sweet wife. This is her first Mother's Day. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to my mom, who will be listening on video later or podcast later and see that I wore a bow tie this morning in honor of Mother's Day. And so uh, she'll be happy with me, I'm sure. Moms, it would take far more than just a day to honor you appropriately. So we hope that your family, we hope that uh, Bayview Glen Church make you feel honored each and every day and loved. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to pray for you uh, this morning. Look, there there are three sermon topics, three things that we can talk about in church that never fail to draw a crowd. Anytime we talk about these topics, people come out of the woodwork. Those three topics are sex, the end times... And will there be sex in the end times? Those are the three topics that never fail to draw a crowd. And unfortunately, we only have time for one this morning. So uh, I feel like, honestly, that phrase, end times, is a little bit weird just because it's a slang term and it's come to represent or come to signify a time in the future when kind of the world as we know it and time and space will come to an end. And there are hundreds of movies out there starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson that you you can watch that will tell you their take on the end times when time and space comes to an end. But today we're going to talk about what the Bible says. And we're talking about what the Bible doesn't say about the end times, especially as it relates to... The kingdom of God, as we close this series called The Crown, for the last five weeks we've been talking about the kingdom of God. So now we're going to talk about what the coming kingdom, the future kingdom of God, looks like. And so by way of review, for those of you who haven't been with us, or just as a reminder and a little bit of setup here, remember that Jesus came to earth in order to inaugurate his kingdom. And in his life and death and resurrection, he established his right to sit on the throne of the universe and sit on the throne of our lives. And Jesus' kingdom, because he was God in the flesh, has vast implications. It's got implications for creation that Jesus will restore even the world around us. It's got implications for the way we think, that the the kingdom of God is a mind-renewing entity. Remember talking about that. And then last week we talked about the kingdom of God and our understanding of ourselves, especially our inability to get ourselves into the kingdom of God by our own goodness. And if you've missed those first four messages, that's okay. They're online, babyglenn.org, video, audio, all that stuff. So Here's the deal, for three years of public ministry, Jesus unfolded his kingdom plans. He taught about the kingdom, he modeled the kingdom, he proved that he was the rightful king, and Jesus' disciples and friends believed that he had effectively inaugurated the kingdom of God. But the disciples also knew, knew, even though they knew that Jesus and believed that Jesus had effectively inaugurated the kingdom of God, they also knew that the kingdom of God wasn't here yet in its entirety. They knew that because Jesus told them that. So that's not, you know, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not here in its entirety. And they go, you know what I think he means by that? The kingdom of God is not yet here in its entirety. That's that's what I think he means by that. So Jesus told them that. But you know what? Like us, the disciples could look around and go, you know what? What Jesus is telling us about his kingdom and our day-to-day experience doesn't match. What Jesus is telling us about what his kingdom looks like and what it's going to be like in the future, that, what, that which he tells us and that which we experience does not match. So clearly it's not all here yet. And since they knew that there was still more to come, since they knew that the kingdom of God in its entirety was still yet to come, they started to get a little antsy. <laughs> they started to get a little antsy. How many of you children, with children, especially moms, you go on a road trip, and you put your kids in the back seat, and you start driving on the road trip, and your kids start to get a little antsy. Has that ever happened to you? And they begin to ask the all-important question. What is that question? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you know when your kids first ask that question, what do you do? You go into this long explanation, right? Okay, well, we're going to get in the car, and then we're going to drive for a while. Then we're going to stop for lunch. Then we're going to drive for another little while. You're going to see this landmark and that landmark. And then we're going to be at your Aunt Janie's place for the night. And then we're going to drive some more tomorrow. And then see that landmark. And when that happens, we will be there. And the closer you get to your destination, the more your kids ask you, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you finally get frustrated with them, don't you? And you say, no, we're not there. Shut your pie hole. Drink your juice box. I will let you know. Watch the exact same thing happen with Jesus' disciples. I'm not kidding you. The exact same thing happens. Matthew 24, verse 3. It's up here on the screen. The disciples start to ask, are we there yet? Just before the end of his life, Jesus is teaching about the future coming of the kingdom of God. He's teaching him about the future manifestation of the kingdom of God, and as he sat on the mount of olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, "Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age?" In other words, what are they saying? Are we there yet? Now, Jesus does exactly what you and I do the first time our kids ask that question. In Matthew chapter 24, he unfolds this very thorough step-by-step process, and he talks about the journey to the rest stops and the distance and the landmarks that will come before the kingdom of God comes in its entirety. It's a very long chapter. And I was telling a friend this week, I stopped by uh, some, of the, some, of the, uh, some of our friends uh, here at Bayview Glen that count our offering during the week. I stay out of that room. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to be a part of it, but I came down just to thank them for serving and I came and I was talking to him a little bit about the message and and I was talking to him about are we there yet and kids in the backseat of the car and disciples saying to Jesus are we there yet are we there yet are we there yet and she said but Luke here's the thing a kid a five-year-old kid in the backseat of the car has no concept of distance the kids got no concept of landmarks like that would not make sense to them even if you unfolded a very thorough explanation of what it's going to take before you get to your final destination And she said, and based on my understanding, that long explanation that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 24 does not make sense to the disciples either. And she's absolutely right. They're like a 5-year-old kid in the back seat of the car. The disciples have a very limited perspective. They've never been on this road trip before. They have no concept of distance. So even though Jesus explains what's going to happen before the kingdom of God comes in its entirety, they don't get it. So they keep asking Jesus, "Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet?" Okay? Then, then something really bad happens. Jesus gets murdered. And they think, "Oh my gosh, we are definitely not there yet." <laughs> But then three days later, what happens? Empty tomb. Jesus shows back up. He's eating meals with them. He's walking through walls. He's got scars, but he's still alive. And they're thinking, we have got to be close now. And so they ask again, Acts chapter 1 verse 6, after Jesus was crucified, now in his resurrected body, the disciples again, it says, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom, there's our buzzword, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they asking Jesus? Are we there yet? Jesus answers in verse 7, he says this, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, which is essentially a nice way of saying, drink your juice box, shut your pie hole, I will let you know when we are there. Okay, just side note, that's not the tone in the scripture, okay? I just, I, that's how I picture Jesus going, look, you've asked, are we there yet? So many times. It's not for you to know the times of the seasons that Father's fixed by his own authority, so quit asking. And even though that's not the tone, the, I, we'll start here. This is good truth for us. This is really good truth for us believers in Christ. Let's just start here. God will let us know when we're there. God will let us know. He will be sure to clue us in when the kingdom of God comes in its entirety. It will not be confusing. God will let us know when we're there. And there are no, this is why this matters. This is why this matters. Stick with me. There are no shortage of folks out there, both Christian and non-Christian, who claim to have special insight into the end times. You ever heard it before? They claim that, you know, they, they know the day, like they have some kind of special glasses that allow them to read like a Bible code, like Nicolas Cage reading the back of the Declaration of Independence or something with special glasses, and, and it allows them to kind of pick a day when the end of time is going to come. And yeah, some of these goofs, like I said, have gone so far as to pick a day. That's been going on for 2,000 years, by the way. And to my knowledge, unless I'm really, really wrong, We're not there yet, because if we're here, we're not there. And for every person that has predicted that the world will end on a certain date, every time, without fail, every single time, that date comes and goes. And then the next thing you know, they publish a revision and saying, I got my date wrong, apparently my glasses, my special glasses were smudged, okay, because I got my date wrong. I guess that they have never read Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, where Jesus says that even he doesn't know when the day is coming. Maybe Jesus didn't have the right glasses or something. I don't know. But if Jesus didn't know, you're not gonna know. No one knows except for God the Father, and he will let us know when we're there. The promise of the future kingdom isn't in the Bible so we can figure out when and how that's all gonna happen. It's there so that we can prepare well. Jesus promises that the kingdom will come in its entirety. Jesus promises a future manifestation of his kingdom so that we can prepare for it, not so that we can take these guesses as to how and why and what that's going to look like. So how do we prepare? Keep reading Acts chapter 1. Jesus tells his disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus promises that the future kingdom is going to come. He says, look, it's not for you to know. It's coming, but it's not for you to know when. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he gives people, a ta- he gives his disciples a task. He gives them a job. He says, tell people about what you've seen. Tell people about what you've heard. Tell people about me. And in order to do that, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you. Keep reading Acts chapter 1, verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, this is his disciples now, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Let me just explain what's going on here because I find this really, really, really funny. This is after Jesus has died and resurrected. He spent about 40 days with his disciples and he appeared to over 500 witnesses and he continued to teach and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then it comes time for him to return to heaven from whence he came. And the disciples ask again, Are we there yet? And he says, Please stop asking. It's not for you to know. In the meantime, do this. Tell people, here's your task, preach the gospel, reach the nations, everybody ready, you can do it. And then he ascends into heaven in a cloud to the right hand of the Father, and these disciples stand there like idiots, gazing into heaven. They're numb total numbskulls. Like I can see Jesus looking back from heaven, going, was I not clear? Like you're just you're just standing there, like I gave you a job. And God the Father looking at Jesus going, you know what, fishermen, I don't know. I, they're dense, I don't, I don't know. And Jesus going, do I gotta go back down there? God the Father going, no, let's just send angels. Which they do, look. The angels say, it says two men in white robes, presumably angels, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? In other words, Peter, John, why are you guys just standing there? Didn't the guy who came back to life And just ascended into heaven, give you a job? Like probably a good idea to get to it. Probably a good idea to get busy. And the task that Jesus gave his disciples was be my witnesses. In other words, please don't spend your time guessing when I'm going to come back. Please don't spend your time sky gazing going, whoa, that was amazing. Shh, he's coming. It, he's coming. Shh. Not yet, not yet, he's coming. Maybe, no. Like, he gave us a task. He gave his disciples a task. He says, go, be my witnesses. Get after it. So here's the implication for us, or here's the application for us. Lots of folks, Christians especially, love to study the end times. We love the prophecy and we love what's going on in the Bible and what does it mean when the lion and the, and the, and the eagle and, the, and all that revelation and Daniel and all over the place. I'm not that guy. That, that, doesn't, like, that doesn't like crank my motor. Like that's just not my thing. But for some of you, it is. And that's cool. That's okay. That's great. But please don't be caught sky gazing like the disciples were. We still have a task. We still have a job. Christians, I love you. You are my people. I love you so much. Baby Glen Church, I love you so much, but please stop it with the obsession over the end times. This is what Jesus is going. Look, I gave you a task. Get after it. So if you're thinking about the end times and you're thinking about prophecy, more, more than you're thinking about reaching your neighbor with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've got it flipped. You've got it backwards. You've got it upside down. If you're thinking about when Jesus might come back and when the end times might hit and when he might come and just say, all right, time and space is over and I'm going to restore and renew the kingdom and come back through the clouds and that whole thing, more than you're thinking about being the grace of God, embodying the unmerited favor of God to the world around you, then you've got it backwards. Let's flip it on its head. You know why? Because God's going to let us know when we're there. It's fun. It's cool to study the end time stuff. It's great. Keep at it but please don't get it backwards. Please don't get it turned on its head. The fascinating part to me, is funny, because one of those sky gazers, one of those disciples that just stood and looked into heaven and didn't get after the task that Jesus gave them was a guy named Peter. And Peter wrote a letter to the church years later, and he's talking about this end times. He's talking about the future coming of the kingdom of God. In 2 Peter 3, verse 8, it's up here on the screen. He says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. So here's what Peter is saying. Do you think Jesus is slow to return? Do you think he's slow? I thought he was slow too, Peter would say to us. I thought he was slow, but he exists outside of time. We're bound by time. So he's not slow because the word slow isn't even really applicable to God. A thousand days is like, or a thousand years is like a day to him. So technically, it's only been two days for God, right? So relax. Take your time. He's going to come back. And by the way, he's not procrastinating. Peter says he's waiting because he's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. Here's what Peter's saying. God is being patient. He's withholding the future coming of the kingdom of God. He's waiting because his work, his restorative work, his redemptive work in the hearts of men is not done yet. And check this out. If you've never met him, he wants you to be next. He's waiting on you. He's withholding that time in the future when he comes back to reconcile all things to himself, to restore and renew, to come and judge the world, which we'll talk about in a minute. He's waiting. He's being patient. Why? Because he loves you and cares for you. He wants you to be next. Let's finish in Acts chapter 1. The promise of God is this. It's up here on the screen. This is what the angels say now to the disciples in Acts chapter 1. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, that's what they just watched, is the ascension, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And Remember, the disciples just asked a question about the future kingdom of God. This is about God's plan to bring time and space to an end and establish his kingdom in its entirety forever. And the promise is this, the promise of God through these angels to his disciples that Luke wrote down in the book of Acts is this. Jesus is going to come back and do just that. He's going to establish his kingdom in its entirety forever. And he's going to come back in the same way that he left. It's funny because the Bible talks about this in other places. In Matthew chapter 24, which we mentioned a minute ago, and Revelation chapter 1, other places, it says that the resurrected Jesus who is now ascended into heaven will return to earth in the clouds. In other words, he'll come back in the exact same way that the disciples saw him ascend into heaven in the clouds. So here's my question. When that happens... When that day finally comes, when we ask that question, are we there yet? And God says, blammo, we're there. What's that going to look like? What does that day look like? What is the future coming of the kingdom of God? When Jesus returns, just as he promised in Acts chapter 1, what does that day look like? And I just picked out two things, just two. The Bible talks about more than two, but I picked out two because these are the clearest and the most often talked about and they show up in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 and 28. If you got your Bibles, you can turn there. It's always up here on the screen. You can use the seatback Bible in front of you. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 and 28. Here's what Jesus or here's what the Bible says about that day that Jesus returns to establish his future kingdom and to and and to bring his completed and consummated kingdom with him. Hebrews 9, verse 27. This is what the author of Hebrews writes. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Just as, it is, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, based on the context here, and based on a mention of the end of the age right before verse 27 and verse 26... The author of Hebrews is talking about the end times here. He's talking about the end of days. And what he means is that judgment doesn't necessarily come immediately after death. It just comes some time after death. And we also know that from the rest of scripture, judgment comes with the return of Christ. So here's the first thing we know about what happens when Jesus comes back and brings his completed kingdom with him. Here's the first thing that happens is judgment. 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 For all. And by judgment, I mean that in the truest sense. I mean evaluation. I mean assessment. I mean appraisal. When we die, last time I checked, everybody dies. When we die, each one of us will face a holy God and we will give an account for our lives. We will be judged. We will be appraised. We will be evaluated when we die. And what happens during that accounting, during that evaluation, will determine whether or not we face the wrath of God. Now, I want to be really, really honest with you. No one likes talking about the wrath of God. (laughs) Like, we don't even talk about it that much in church because no one likes talking about it. Have you guys seen, has anybody seen Talladega Nights? Don't, Don't admit it in church. Don't admit it. With the Will Ferrell. Have you heard of the Will Ferrell? Okay, he starts talking in Talladega Nights. I re-watched the scene this week on YouTube, Kevin. I did. But when they're sitting around the dinner table, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Don't nod your head. You're fired. Um, <laughs> he's shaking his head. There's this scene in Talladega Nights where Will Ferrell's character, Ricky Bobby, starts praying at a, at a meal, at lunch. And he starts praying to eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus. Has any, do you ever remember that? Starts praying to eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. Then everybody at the table starts talking about the ways they like to view Jesus. Because Will Ferrell's wife goes, Look, he actually like grew up and became an adult. You don't have to pray to baby Jesus, dear eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus, all the time. Like, he actually became an adult. And Will Ferrell says, Will Ferrell's character says, Look, uh, that's how I like to picture Jesus as a little baby. That's how I like to picture him. And then his best friend, a guy named Cal or something, is like, you know, I like to picture Jesus with, like, big eagle's wings. And he's fronting a Leonard Skinner concert, man. That's how I like to picture Jesus. And then somebody else at the table says, I like to picture bearded Jesus. And he's holding a lamb. And he's got a staff in his hand. Like, nobody at the table in Talladega Nights, by the way, not real, by the way, but nobody at the table says, you know what, here's how I like to picture Jesus. I like to picture him with fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and a tattoo on his thigh and, a, and he's wearing a robe dipped in blood. That's how I like to picture Jesus. You know why? Because we don't like talking about the wrath of God. But, but it's interesting, that's exactly how the Bible describes the returning king of kings in Revelation chapter 19. That's exactly how the Bible describes the return of Jesus in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back to judge, when he comes back as reigning king and supreme king. We don't like to talk about it, but it's true. We will be judged, and what happens in that judgment will determine whether or not we face the wrath of God. But here's the thing, and and he, and and. You know, I know it's difficult to talk about the wrath of God, but let's just be really straight with one another here. You cannot separate love from wrath. No matter how much we want to say God loves, but he does not have wrath, no matter how much we want to think about Jesus as the gentle and humble, and, you know, he's a good teacher and all that stuff, you cannot separate love from wrath. If you're being intellectually honest, we have to admit that the capacity for love always carries with it the capacity for wrath. So this is why we have to face the wrath of God. This is why we have to face it head on, think about it head on, is because the capacity for love always carries with it the capacity for wrath. Let me illustrate this by asking you a Mother's Day question. Mothers, how many of you, by a show of hands, love your children? Come on now, come on. How many of you because you love your children, have wanted to exact wrath on someone who endangered your children, right? Because you cannot separate love from wrath. You cannot love deeply without the potential for wrath towards something that endangers what you love. And parents, the more intense you love your kids, the more intense that wrath is when someone endangers your kids, right? Like, if someone keyed your car... You might be angry, but if someone like keyed your kid, the wrath comes out more intensely, doesn't it? This is the same way with God. He loves his children. He loves his grand kingdom plan. He loves the glory of his name. He loves, and when I say love, he deeply, strongly, unconditionally loves to restore and redeem and rescue. So when something or someone stands against what he loves intensely, by default, that thing that stands against him is an object of his wrath. We can't separate the two. I mean, we like to think of a loving, gentle Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, and that's good, that's okay. The Bible talks about that, but please be certain, you cannot have love without wrath. If you love deeply, wrath towards something that endangers or attempts to destroy the object of your love is a necessary result. So when God judges us on that day, let me ask you the question. When God judges us, when he evaluates us, when we are appraised, When we are evaluated by God on that last day, when we die, it's appointed for us to die once and then we face judgment. When we face judgment, will God find that we have endangered, stood against, or attempted to destroy the objects of his love? Things like his glory, his fame, his law. Well, of course he will. Of course he will. He'll find that we stood in contrast to that at times, sometimes on purpose, sometimes on accident. But there will be in that judgment a time where we say, yep, I I agree with you, God. I stood against your plan. I stood against the things that you love in that moment. And we might think to ourselves, oh, well, you know what, Luke, I've done more good than bad. Like the, the scales in my life, you know, outweigh, like I've done more good stuff than bad stuff. You know what, let's just say that's true. Let's just say that's true. Let's just say you've done more good stuff than bad stuff. Can you imagine, moms, back to, okay, look, I know I keyed your kid, but I've been really nice to your kid ever since then. Oh, yeah, you're fine then. Cool, no problem, sorry. no. You still keyed my kid. Like, even if you've done more good stuff than bad stuff, there will be times when we stand before the living God and He judges us. He evaluates us. We watch the tape of our life, so to speak, and we go, Yeah, I stood against your wrath or I stood against those things that you love. I undermined those things, sometimes on purpose, sometimes on accident, but I get it. I'm an object of God's wrath. When that judgment day comes, each one of us will stand guilty of undermining what God loves. So what then? How do you answer a holy God? How do you answer the living God? Now this, this is why the gospel is so glorious. This is why the good news about Jesus is so, so good. Because you and I, we have no answer. We did stand against the things that God loved. And we are objects of his wrath, but God because of his great love for us, provided a way for us to answer on that day. I'm gonna say that again, because that's just good. God, because of his great love for us, provided a way for us to answer on that day when we die and face the judgment of God, and it shows up in Hebrews 9, verse 28. Here it is. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now look what's happening here. This is is what the author of Hebrews is saying. We don't have an answer when we face the judgment of God, the evaluation of God, when God appraises us and judges our life. We have no answer. But God himself, in the form of his son Jesus Christ, entered into the world to live the life we were meant to live, to die the death we were meant to die, to pay the penalty that was ours to pay. In short, Jesus faced the judgment of God. Jesus faced the wrath of God so that we don't have to he rose again to conquer victor, conquer sin and hell and death. And now we stand, instead of guilty before the, before the holy God, we say, Jesus already took my penalty. Jesus already took my, took my place. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now, this is a brilliant solution on God's part. Now, watch this. This is great. God can't ignore sin or he wouldn't be just. He can't ignore sin or he wouldn't be just. But God refuses to let us self-destruct because he loves us so much. So instead of compromising his love and exacting his wrath, instead of compromising his judgment and his rightful wrath against us and just sweeping it under the rug and compromising his character, he sent his son to accept his wrath in its entirety on our behalf and embody his love. So God's character is not compromised at all. He fulfilled both qualifications, both love and wrath. So now, because of Jesus, what can we expect when God's kingdom comes in its completed form? Look at the second half of verse uh, verse 28. It says that Jesus will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to what? Save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the second thing that the Bible tells us, first we can expect judgment, and for those who know him, the second thing that we, expect when, we can expect when Jesus comes and brings his kingdom in its entirety is salvation. Now that's a sweet word. He will return a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him oh what a glorious thought as the hymn writer would say that our sin is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more so when we are judged and we will be each and every one of us those who know jesus won't have to face the wrath of god because jesus already took our place it's already gone it's already fulfilled on our behalf in christ that's why we Eagerly await the return of our gracious and glorious King rather than nervously, oh I don't know when he's coming back, I don't know when he's coming back. Do we just at at the end of scripture this is how Revelation 21 ends? It says, Come Lord Jesus, because I'm cool. Like it's over for me. I don't have to face the wrath of God anymore because you did it, so just come and bring salvation with you. Bring your glorious kingdom with you because I'm, I'm fine. I don't stand before a holy God judged and guilty. I stand before a holy God righteous and complete and whole. And what does the Bible say? Now for me awaits instead of judgment and wrath. What does the Bible say awaits? It says he's prepared a place for me in his father's house. You know there's a room waiting for me in God's house? If you know him, there's a room waiting Waiting for you Jesus said in John chapter 14 I wouldn't have told you that if it wasn't true I go to prepare a place for you did you know this the Bible says that you are a co-heir with Christ so when he returns and brings his completed kingdom with him and brings salvation for you it means that you will rule and reign with him It says that that when God brings his completed kingdom and when Jesus returns in the clouds, you won't have to face the wrath of God, and there'll be no more sickness, no more dying, no more pain. This one's crazy to me. The sun won't need to exist anymore because the light of God will be enough. Woo! That's what's coming for those who know him. We will see God completely, and and sin won't blur our vision anymore. We will never be separated from God or separated from one another by death. The glorious presence of Jesus, who's the fountain of all joy and peace and goodness, will be completely revealed. And as we talked about three weeks ago, creation. God will restore and renew his perfect design and allow us to live with him eternally. This is why the gospel is such good news because when Jesus returns to judge when Jesus returns he won't have wrath in his hand for those who know him he'll have salvation and goodness and grace and an eternal kingdom that will go on forever and ever and ever and ever we will experience the salvation of God those who know Christ let's conclude this way back to 2 Peter Back to 2 Peter, it's up here on the screen. Second half of verse 9, Peter's talking about the coming kingdom, the future kingdom, when God comes back to judge and he has salvation in his hand for those who know him rather than wrath. Peter says this, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That word repentance is really the key word because that's the prerequisite for avoiding God's wrath and experiencing his salvation and his future kingdom in its entirety. That word repentance, that's the clutch word. In the original language, in the Greek, which your Bible's written in, it's metanoeo. And it means a change of mind, a change of thought process. What it means is that God wishes you to come to a place, his desire, and the reason why he's even waiting on bringing his future kingdom and putting it in place now is he's waiting on you. Don't think he's waiting on my neighbor, he's waiting on somebody down the down the aisle from me. He's waiting on you, those of you who don't know him, who have never met him, he's waiting on you and he's going, I desire that they would come to a place of repentance that says, okay, God, I get it. I understand. I want to experience your salvation and goodness and grace when your kingdom is complete. So I accept that free gift of grace that you extend. I accept Jesus as a substitute and I say yes to your invitation. Here's the great news about the gospel you don't have to do anything, you don't have to take a class. We're going to take communion here in a little while, and it's just a representative element. It's not like a prerequisite for your salvation, like until you take communion. It's nothing. You don't have to do good deeds. You don't have to give to the poor. You don't have to do, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I accept that penalty. I accept what you paid, what you did on the cross for me, and I want to experience your goodness and grace and salvation. And now, now. I walk with you, Jesus. I learn from you, Jesus. You become now my Lord, Jesus, because of what you did for me. So the disciples asked Jesus, are we there yet? The answer is no. God will let us know when we're there. And when we're there, we'll all face judgment. And for those who know him, we'll face salvation completely and totally And unhindered. So my final question for you today is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? If you died today, do you know where you'll spend eternity? Do you know what's waiting for you on the other side? Here's what I want to tell you, friends, and look up at me. Look up at me. If you don't I know you don't know me. I know some of you have been here for the first time. I get that. Here's what I want for you. I want you to be confident that that day that you pass from this life to the next What you'll face is a God that says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Your room is all ready for you. I've been preparing and I've got salvation for you. And when Jesus personally returns to complete his kingdom, he's already inaugurated 2,000 years ago, when he comes and brings it in its entirety and its full and complete form, I want for you to rule and reign with him and to experience the joy and the goodness that is the gospel of jesus christ and not just the gospel but the person of jesus who he is and all that he has for you i want you to experience it so are you ready and for some of you you're going you know it's the first time i've heard this or i'm not really interested in this that's great that's fine that's okay that's okay I, I, I love having you here. You're always welcome here. Please keep coming back. We want to walk with you in your spiritual journey, answer whatever questions you got. This is not a hard sell. I'm not trying to push you over a cliff here, okay? But for some of you, for some of you, something just changed in your mind. Something just changed in your heart. And you saw that question, are you ready? And you thought, you know what, I'm not. I don't know where I'm going when I die. I don't know what's on the other side. I don't know when I face the judgment of God, I have no answer for him. If that's, if that's, if that's what's going to go on, I, I got nothing good to say. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to say yes to Jesus so that when you die, and it's appointed for you to die once, it's appointed for me to die once, and you face the judgment of God, your answer for God is going to be Jesus. He took my place. The wrath that I deserved is already taken care of in him because he came and died once and took the penalty that I earned for myself. I want to invite you to pray with me. For those who have never said yes to Jesus before, for those who maybe have, have explored the gospel, for those of you who, who, who have considered Jesus and thought about Jesus, maybe you're just hearing about Jesus for the first time. Maybe you came with your mom today to, to say, okay, mom, I'll go to church with you here on Mother's Day. I know there are people in this place that just heard that for the first time, and you don't want to face the wrath of God. And Jesus took your place just as he took my place so that you wouldn't have to do so. So you could face salvation and goodness and grace and all the good things God has in store for you. Here's what saying yes to Jesus looks like. And if you're ready to take that step of faith and say yes to Jesus, I invite you to pray this prayer in your heart. You don't have to pray it out loud. God, hears. What is going on in your head and in your heart? It goes something like this. Jesus, I know that there are times and I've stood against the plan of God. I've undermined the plan of God. I know God has good things. I know he has a moral law. I know he has a will. And I've stood against that, sometimes on purpose, sometimes on accident. Sometimes I've just stood against it because God has commanded things that I didn't do. And I know that I'm not gonna have an answer for him when I die. I know that my good deeds, no matter how much I've done, I still stood against the plan of God and stood against the thing that he loved. I know I stand before you judged and guilty. But today, for the first time, I accept that you took care of the debt I owed. You took care of the guilt that was mine. You took care of the shame that was mine. And so I want to say yes and respond to that invitation and know that I have eternal life with you when your glorious kingdom comes in its entirety. I want you to know if you pray that in your heart today and you came before God with sincerity and said, you know what, I own my own sin, I own my own shame, and I accept the free gift of grace that Jesus extends, I want you to know that you will spend eternity with him. You have nothing, nothing, listen to me, nothing, to be afraid of when he returns all he has for you is salvation and goodness in his right hand with heads bowed and eyes closed I'm going to ask you to do something courageous here nobody looking around it's just kind of a private moment if you prayed that prayer before Jesus today would you just be bold with nobody looking around just be courageous and slip your hand up just so I know I'm going to pray for you fantastic God, we come before you and we acknowledge that your kingdom is coming in its entirety. God, for those in this place that know you already, may we be about the business of being on mission. Let us not get caught, God, like the disciples as sky gazers waiting and trying to figure out when you're returning and where and, and, and how long it's going to be and, and what that's going to look like. God, uh, if, if that's what we like to study and look at in the scripture, that's one thing. But, but let us not get off task. Let us be reminded today that our job is to go and tell people about all that we've seen and heard until you return and you will. God, we are thankful today that we don't have to face your wrath, that all you have for us when you come in return is goodness and grace and mercy, and you have a plan for an eternal kingdom. I give you great thanks and praise today, O oh God. And together, the church of God said, Amen.